0: Thank you, uh, Howard and Richard Team, for leading us in those songs. Uh, uh, blessings, just so the, especially the Christmas themed songs and the rich truths within. Uh, uh, <clears throat> thank you for reminding me of the significance of the birth of our Savior. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, good morning to all of you, actually. Uh, you know, welcome to our morning service. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Mark, not Mark, Luke, <laughs> chapter 9. Verse 37 to 50. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 50. Uh, I know that many of you ladies uh, probably joined us last yesterday for our uh, women's Christmas luncheon. I hope you were blessed with the time together. I want to thank all those who served and who uh, uh, ministered, uh, as well as those who just came and visited and partook. Uh, uh, just a blessing. It was, it was good to see that, uh, um, <clears throat> I, uh, at least, well, actually, I wasn't there, but I heard from my wife that it was a wonderful time and that it was a great blessing. Uh, to all who came, and especially just uh, many of you who invited uh, friends and visitors to join us, and it's a great season of time uh, to to tell others about Jesus Christ and the significance of why He came. So I hope uh, we'll continue. God will uh, you'll continue to do that as God opens those doors, and and perhaps even. Uh, <clears throat> You know, just uh, as you uh, get the chance to talk to people about uh, during the week, oh, what you uh, learn or things that you can always talk to them about, what you learned about Jesus at church on Sunday, and invite them to many of our Christmas events and our Christmas uh, programs coming up uh, this uh, coming weekend, this coming Saturday. So uh, please uh, mark that. I hope you'll join us. Uh, our, our, I know our choir has been practicing really hard uh, for the songs that they'll be presenting. So uh, please uh, uh, use it as an opportunity to invite uh, those who do not know Christ to come and hear about Jesus. Anyways, Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 50 is where we'll be this morning as we continue our series through the gospel of Luke, to help, <clears throat> written by Luke to help us to understand uh, for certain the things that we have been taught about Jesus Christ. Anyways, uh, let's pray and I'll read the text within the sermon this morning. Father, thank you for your word and glorify yourself through the proclamation of your word. May Jesus Christ be magnified and may your spirit move among us filling us, and Lord, uh, causing us to be uh, convicted and, and instructed in your word, that we would be men and women who not only uh, understand your word but, live and, but believe, and believe it, but live it out and share it with others. Especially this Christmas season, we pray that you would give us many op- opportunities and open doors to tell others about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, uh, we are all servants and followers of, of Christ, of Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus, who is our king. And when, it means, when we say that Jesus is our king, it means that we no longer live our lives purely for ourselves, but we live our lives for him. We seek to honor. We seek to glorify Jesus with our lives. We seek to uh, live our lives in a way that would, uh, that would bring glory to him, tell uh, that others would That others watching our life, listening to our words would be able to see Jesus in us. Jesus has commissioned us to go out into the world, to to make disciples of all the nations. And we do so uh, through not only living according to God's word and living it out, but speaking the truths of God in the power of God. And it's a great privilege for us to, to serve the king. And I, hopefully that's something that you understand as a Christian. That as a, as a Christian, you, are, you exist to, to make disciples. You exist to tell others about Jesus. And that's that you understand that we are called to, to service to our king, a ministry to our king. But even as we serve the Lord, even as we serve our king, there is oftentimes great temptation, even as we serve him, to make ministry about us. To make ministry about something we get out of it, something that we say or we, we, we use to draw our attention of others to ourselves. No matter what ministry we may do for him. Sometimes we fall into the temptation of thinking that the ministry is really, it's, it's my ministry. And that it, its success is because of me. It's because of something that I, uh, I've done or I've, I've been put into ministry. It's about the fact that I've been involved in it and I've given to it and I've uh, been the one who has uh, led it. Or or, uh, done the work in it. And therefore, when God blesses that ministry, God uses it to to change lives, to to grow the church, it can make me think that I'm great. Because I believe that it was because of me that did those things. And I don't know about you, but it's especially true for pastors. Especially true for pastors. But it's true for all Christians. It's true for all Christians. Because we're all the same. We're all sinners. We're all given to pride. We're all given to making uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ our ministry, my ministry, the ministry of Henry Tammer, the ministry of filling your own name. We wrestle with the same temptations that Jesus' first disciples wrestled with. And as those who serve the Lord, today's passage teaches us some important lessons for serving the king. It's important lessons to, to guard us from the, the temptations that are, we are susceptible to as we serve in the ministry of the King. In our passage today, Jesus is going to correct uh, his disciples on several misunderstandings about their ministry for the kingdom. And he uh, will teach them and correct them in, through a basically, Luke records it down in, as a series of three or four events. And I hope that as we preach and walk through it today, that it will equip you uh, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, in your ministry to our King. That it will equip you uh, with kingdom perspectives so that you may succeed and, yes, that you may be great in the ministry that Christ has entrusted to you. Although Jesus had chosen 12 to be his official representatives, and although uh, he had chosen the 12 to be his representatives, and they had been with him, watching him, listening to him, learning from him, the 12 still had a lot of misunderstandings about Jesus, about the the Messiah, and about the ministry that they would have as his disciples, as his apostles. And so as we're going to look at today, we're going to look at four situations, really, Uh, that call for, uh, in a sense, four corrections from the Lord. He'll make four short statements uh, to correct the disciples about some misunderstanding about ministry. And so I've kind of just, to put in as a sort of applicational outline for us this morning, uh, I think we can look at it as four keys to greatness in kingdom ministry. Four keys to greatness in kingdom ministry. And so let's take a look at this text then. The first key to greatness in kingdom ministry is found in, the, in 37 to 43. And that is the kingdom, the, <clears throat> the, the key is believing in God. Believing in God. In verse 37 to 40, we're gonna look at just give, give us the setting of this, of this passage. It's the main part of our text. We'll spend probably the most of our time in the first two points. We read in verse 37 to 40. Take a look there with me on this scripture. On the next day, When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Now, it says that Jesus, on the next day, uh, came down from the mountain. And this was the mountaintop in which he was transfigured, where he was met with Moses and Elijah, where Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of it, where they all heard the voice of God declare that this is my chosen son. And there was there that his divine glory was revealed. There, John, Peter... (laughs) and John James saw the majesty of God now coming down from the mountain. The next day they, they came down from the mountain. They come down from the mountaintop experience. And there they all of a sudden are, are met back with a, a large crowd of the masses, the people. There was a huge commotion even as they're coming down. It's, it's almost kind of like a as Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and all of a sudden hearing the revelry that was going on, this commotion among the Israel. This is a similar kind of imagery almost that Jesus and his disciples coming down and all of this commotion among this crowd. Mark's parallel tells us that the, that the scribes are there and they're actually arguing with Jesus' disciples. That is particularly the nine disciples that was, uh, that was left. They didn't get to go up the mountaintop. And the crowds are surrounding them. And Jesus, at least in the parallels, comes up and asks them, you know, basically, what it is that they were arguing about. And no one gives them an answer, but then a man comes out of the crowd. This man that we read about here in verse 38, a man comes out and he he comes and he actually casts himself at Jesus' feet. He's a, you can tell he's he's a desperate man. And as we read in the story, you can understand why. This man is desperate. He's begging the teacher, the rabbi. To look at his son, his only son, it is an appeal to Jesus' compassion. This one and only son that this man has is has been possessed by a demon. interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke often emphasizes that the, the many uh, the several one and only children of various individuals that call for Jesus' compassion. It recalls Jesus' compassion on the widow's only son in chapter 7 and Jairus' only daughter in chapter 8. The widow's son was dead. Jairus' daughter was dying. This man's son was demon-possessed. It would cause the boy, as the father described, to scream and convulse and, and foam at the mouth. And then when the demon would leave it, it would maul the son in some way. Apparently, he had actually tried to bring the boy to the nine disciples so they might cast, them, cast out the demon. He was their hope. He was like, oh, I heard that these disciples could cast out demons. They had just gone through all throughout Galilee. Remember, two by two, and they had given, Jesus had given them authority over demons and diseases as they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. But he brought them to them, these nine, and, and he asked them probably, and, but they could not cast out the demon. How is it that they were once successful, and now they could not cast out this demon? Why did they fail? Why could they not cast out the demon this time? What changed? Jesus' reply would help his disciples to understand what it was that they're missing, what it was that they didn't understand, what it was really that they had forgotten. They had remembered when they were uh, two by two earlier in chapter 9, but now they had forgotten when this man had brought his son to them. Verse 41 to 43, we read, Jesus' response really to this. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? And put up with you. Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed into the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Jesus' response here clearly conveys a, a great disappointment. You could read it in many different ways. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he was sorrowful as he said these words. Well, my impression is that. He was sorrowful, and he was frustrated. There's a disappointment here that Jesus has in his disciples. His disappointment, though, is not just limited to his disciples. He does say, you unbelieving and perverted generation. He's addressing the whole generation of this crowd, the whole generation of people that are surrounding them. Everyone there, no one understood, no one had noticed what they missed the crowd, the father, the disciples, the scribes, as well as the masses. And he identifies their main problem, the cause of their ineffectiveness in ministry, why they couldn't cast out the demon this time. He says, You unbelieving and perverted generation. And there's the answer it is their unbelief, their lack of faith. They had, grown, uh, even the word perverted there has a, for us in our modern day, has an idea of sexual perversion, but the idea just basically means crooked. That they're not following the ways that God has laid out for them. That they had basically gone off the, the path. You unbelieving and crooked generation. Both Matthew and Mark record the disciples later asking, in fact, why we could not drive it out. To which Jesus then answered that it was because of their littleness of faith. Matthew 17, 20 there. And he then said that this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You see, despite having spent time watching Jesus depend on the Lord for all of their ministry, the disciples had somehow, by this point, thought, and even though they had cast out demons themselves, they had thought that they could now cast out demons in their own strength, in their own power. And they did not depend upon God for their ministry They did not pray to God to cast out this demon. They didn't pray. And it grieved Jesus to see his disciples watch him, listen to him, and learn from him, and still miss completely what is important here. Even the father of this son lacks faith as well, according to Mark. Yet Jesus does not ignore this man's problem. He does not say, well, you guys don't have faith, so I'm not going to heal your son. Sometimes people say, oh, uh, there are people out there that are called faith healers and say, well, you know, uh, you can go to them and you can give them money and they'll they to heal you. But if they, if you don't get healed, they'll say, oh, you know, the problem is you lack faith. That's the problem. You're probably, you don't have enough faith. These people do not have enough faith. But Jesus still heals the son. Jesus heals sovereignly and wh- whoever he wills. His compassion does not depend upon the faith or lack of faith of men and women. His compassion depends on the sovereign grace of God. He commands them to bring the boy to him. And then he proceeds to cast out the demon. Even the demon is resisting and fighting back. And he gives the man back his son, his only one. And everyone's amazed because they see before them the greatness of God. It's interesting, this word, the greatness of God, is the same word that's that's described uh, of Jesus and the transfiguration, where they saw his majesty—same word. There's just be translated greatness here. You can be trying. They were amazed at the majesty of God. The disciples had seen the majesty of God in this transfiguration of Jesus in the transfiguration on the mountain. But here, when these men, the masses, saw the power of Jesus and this compassion for this man's only only son who was demon possessed, they too saw the majesty and greatness of God. But the lesson for ministry is, I think it's straightforward, it's simple, that we would not be men and women of an unbelieving and perverted or crooked generation, that we would be believing people, that we must be men and women of faith in God for all of ministry. We must believe in him, trust in him, have faith in him for the great things that we do as well as the small things that we do. We must not be like the disciples and think that it's our power or our adequacy for ministry is 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 uh, enables us to do the things for the Lord. That somehow what we that what we need to do the work for Christ is found right here, is not found right here in this body, in this flesh. This is flesh. This is this is uh, weak flesh. It's found in God. It's found in Him. The power to do all things is found in Christ. The world tells you, and maybe you've heard it, that if you want to do great things, you must believe in whom? Yourselves. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Believe that you can do it. Imagine it, if you will. Think about it. Believe in yourself. Believe you can do it. You can do it. And that's the best the world offers. That's what the world knows. That's what you would say when you have a finite mind. You cannot see beyond. But the Word tells you that if you want to do great things, you must believe in God. In God. We must, we have, a God who is the Creator, the one who is sovereign, the one who is all knowing, all powerful. He, we must believe in Him to do the Word. Our advocacy and power for ministry comes from believing in God. In God who will work in us to work and work through us. I love 2 Corinthians. It's a great book about ministry. And I always go there when I think about ministry passages, ministry truths. And 2 Corinthians 3, 5 is the principle there that, that reminds me of what we just, the principle here. There, Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. I love Paul. Paul just says understands Paul was one of the greatest, right? He was the He'll tell him, call himself the least of the apostles and all that. And he'll tell you, I was a murderer. But, you know, of all the apostles, we read the most about Paul. All of, you know We read a lot about it. We're exposed to Paul. And Paul does a great and awesome ministry. But what does he say? What, did it all come from me? No, my adequacy didn't, didn't, I didn't, it didn't come from myself. But our adequacy, my adequacy is, is from God. Our power is from God. Our wisdom is from God. All that makes me adequate for ministry, all that makes you and I, me adequate for ministry is from God. And that's what we need to depend upon, God. Believe in God. Now, how do we practically do this? Uh, Jesus alludes to it in the parallel passage. That is, this, this one can kind of come out through, but through prayer. A real practical way for us to express our dependence upon God, our faith in God, is through prayer. That's, that's what... And that's what uh, we can do through the spiritual discipline of prayer. And when we pray, we express to God our faith and dependence upon Him. We pray for our daily breads and our daily needs. Jesus teaches His disciples this first point, this first key to the greatest, that they need to remember that if you want to be great in the kingdom, of, in kingdom ministry, you must be one who believes in God, trust in God for the ministry that's before you. Now, the second key to greatness in kingdom ministry is found in verses 43 to 45. And here, the second key is understanding Christ's death, understanding Christ's death. Look at verse 43. It's right in the middle, or you kind of pick up in the middle of verse 43. Um, And it it just seems like it really continues on, but the parallels actually have this as almost as a Describe as a separate event. It's, on a, it's almost a different occasion, a little bit later on, maybe a day or two later. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they all did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement." This is the second time in Luke that Jesus announces his coming death. The first time was back in verse 22 of chapter 9. So it wasn't too long ago. We were <clears throat> chapter 9, 22. It was after Peter's great confession about who Jesus Christ is. Who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter said, you are the Christ of God. So not only did he reveal to him about the death, but Jesus' death was also the subject of the discussion on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the immediately previous passage with Moses, and where he had discussed with Moses Elijah about his departure from Jerusalem. And Jesus now states it again here. The third, really, if you're interested in the Gospel of Luke, the third time it's referenced, but it's the second time that Jesus is telling his disciples. <clears throat> But why does Jesus tell his disciples? Just thinking in light of the context of what's taking place. The demonstration of his power over the demon. And probably among the crowds, there were probably other miracles that he had to perform, as well as his teaching about the kingdom of God. All of this was basically a demonstration of his majesty, his glory, his greatness. And everyone, including the disciples, they were all marveling again at his power especially for the three who had just seen him on the mountain. And then he comes down and he casts out this demon that nobody else could cast out. And they're all in all, they're marveling. And they're just being convinced or being confirmed even more in their hearts that this really is the Messiah. This really is the king. This really is the, the son of man. This really is the prophet like Moses. And, and, they're, and they're, they're just excited because these are These are the promises that they and their fathers and the forefathers before them had all been hoping for. And now he was here on earth. And they think, our king has come. And they were excitedly expecting him to come and just establish his kingdom and reign on earth. They thought it was just gonna be peace on earth for the rest of their lives. And Jesus knew and what was in their minds and their hearts, and which explains then his solemn words. They're all marveling, they're all excited. But what does he say instead? His response is: let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. Basically, listen to carefully what I say. Let these words sink into your ears. This is important for you to understand. You probably won't hear listen to me as I say, it. so I want to say it before I say it. Let these words sink into your ears. He knows that this is something that they are not going to understand and grasp. And what is it? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, it's really, it's similar to what we saw in verse 22. There in verse 22 is much more explicit. There he would be betrayed and he would be killed and he would then be raised. But the idea is similar. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men in, in whose hands he would be killed. Verse 22. If we can compare and contrast this with verse 22. Verse 22 stressed the necessity of his death. But here Jesus stresses the certainty of his death. He says, there he said the son of man must be. Here the son of man is going to be. Jesus, once again, uses the Messianic title of himself, the Son of Man, from Daniel 7, 3, 4, 13 and 14. And Daniel 7, 13 14, tells us about the one of whom one day would receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples, all nations, all tongues might serve him. He's the promised king. He's the, the Son of Man, <clears throat> is <clears throat> the promised Messiah. But... Jesus tells them that that Son of Man that you're expecting to receive dominion and glory and kingdom, whom all nations and tongues and peoples will, will serve, this Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. The one who ought to be served by men would be condemned and crucified by them. Jesus the Christ was born into our world that he might die on the cross for the sins of the world. And this is what we now know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born that he might live and die on the cross for sins of the world. And be raised on the third day so that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not face God's wrath and judgment, but have eternal life, forgiveness of sins in Christ. And though Jesus has now conveyed this, basically this essential, this message of his death to his disciples twice now, Peter, James, John would have gathered it three times if they were listening to what Moses and Elijah were saying to Jesus. They still did not understand it. It's not that they didn't understand that Jesus was saying that I'm going to die. It's just that they understood that, but it just doesn't fit with their, perspe- their perception and their expectation that he was going to be um, the king who would reign and rule. It did not fit with the preconceptions of Christ. Christ is king. Kings are to reign. Why would a king come to die? The Messiah isn't supposed to die, is what they thought. The thought of it, in fact, grieved them, according to Matthew's parallel account in Matthew Matthew 17.23. So they grasped it, but it grieved them because it just didn't fit. When Jesus told them of his coming death the first time, in fact, what did Peter do? Peter took Jesus aside and and rebuked him. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not sending your mind on God's interests but man's. It's likely that the disciples remembered that first time, and now they heard it the second time, and they remembered what Peter did, and they remembered what Jesus said to him, Satan, called him Satan, right? And they said, hmm, we're probably not gonna raise that question again. That's why they're a little silent, right? Because they, they, they were too embarrassed. They didn't want to ask Jesus. They, they, they didn't really understand it. The death of Christ, this, even though they, they knew he was saying that, but it just didn't fit. How would that be possible? It was a sensitive subject. But what's more, not only would they didn't understand it, they did not understand it, but we learned that the understanding was somehow concealed from them. Of course, it says it was concealed to them so that they would not, that they would not uh, receive it or believe it. The question often is, at least every commentary brings it up, is uh, the question, who, do, who concealed it from them? Was it Satan, the god of this world, blinds the minds of unbelieving? Was it God who concealed it? God being sovereign God, you know, who can harden the heart of Pharaoh, can certainly harden the hearts of men if he so chooses. Both have biblical arguments. Both could be true. Certainly it's possible that both are true. The point is that the text doesn't tell us. It simply tells us that it was concealed to them. They could not understand. The, the point for the disciples, they could not understand this. They just could not grasp the idea of the betrayal, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, of the king. And brothers and sisters, as ministers, as you and I, I'm, I'm not saying as pastors, but as, as servants of Christ, ministers, we must get this right. We must understand the significance of Christ's death. I think for most of you in this room, you understand that. But I want to say it very clearly because Jesus says this clearly. This is what Christianity is about. This is the heart of the gospel message. Christianity is about this gospel message about Jesus Christ, and at the heart of the gospel is about how Christ died in our place. Christianity, I was looking at the top 10 books of Christian books on Amazon recently. Uh, and I was just look at, whoa, what is the Christian life about? You know, I mean? the Christianity, in, and despite what the, the books people are buying out there, Christianity is not about to have, simply having a vibrant prayerful, prayer life. It's not how to be a man or a woman. It's not about understanding the love languages or managing your money or, com, or even is, Christianity is not about commemorating a baby being born. Christianity is about Jesus Christ who was killed, crucified for the sins of the world. And the most effective servants of God, the greatest of the servants of God, have been those who have understood and communicated simply the powerful message of Christ crucified. Say what you will about Billy Graham, but that man knew the essential necessity of Christ crucified, and he preached it, and thousands came to Christ. And thousands came to Christ. Many of you probably came to Christ because of Billy Graham's ministry understood, and we need people to understand and communicate simply the message, a powerful message of Christ crucified. Understanding, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, that though, yes, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's why you sometimes feel awkward about sharing it, that Jesus, this man, this, the God took on the form of man, and he died in our place for our sins. That sounds foolish to most people, because our world tells you that, hey, man's good. Deep down, we're all good. When the Bible tells us, and the reality is that deep down, we're, we're all sinners. We're all fallen. We're not as bad as we could be by the grace of God, but at the heart, we're sinners. And that's why God sent his son. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, and 24. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. I love that phrase. It really just categorizes our world today, even people out there. What it really, it's not just that they're almost in a sense like this, basically two categories got people. Maybe we're all like a little bit of both. There are people who look for signs. We say they always look for supernatural things. I want a, I want a supernatural experience. They're all about the experience, the wonders, the awes. And then there are the Greeks who search for wisdom. They want explanations. They want a rational kind of understanding, philosophy about it. There's the supernatural, and then there's the philosophical. People will look for these things, these explanations of our world, these things that we're looking for. But what do we preach? Paul continues, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ crucified, the king crucified to Jews, that's a stumbling block. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit their perception of the Messiah. And to Gentiles, it's a foolishness, because it is irrational. For for the the heart, the significance, the very essence of your of your faith, of your religion, is that your your founder comes to die in weakness as a common criminal. That's foolishness. But nevertheless, this gospel of Christ crucified, it is to those who are being saved, whether you're Jews, whether you're Greeks, no matter who you are, kind of person, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God to save. Let us remember, brothers sisters, remember that Christ's death is the power and wisdom that saves sinners. No other message you convey. There's a lot of different messages that we talk about, you know. But if we want to be great in kingdom ministry, let's never forget the essential, necess- the essentialness of Christ and him crucified, Christ's death, and communicate that, especially this season. Our third uh, element that we see, our third uh, <clears throat> key to greatness in kingdom ministry, is found in verse 46 to 48, and that is loving the least. If you want to be great in the kingdom ministry, you want to be effective in kingdom ministry, you need to be one who is love, who is loving of the least. We pick up uh, in verse 46:48, says another, it's a, Luke records it here for us. It's another really different element uh, event in the life of G- Jesus as he's walking with his disciples, returning to, uh, returning towards Galilee. And it says in verse 46:48, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Uh, Matthew and Mark will tell us that this event takes place near Capernaum. So Jesus has come back from, uh, if it was Mount Hermon where the Mount of Transfiguration was, then he's come back from Mount Hermon, he's now back in Capernaum, in Galilee. The disciples on the way get into an argument among themselves. They're, you know, as they're all young men, and so young men, as they are, sometimes prone to do, they get into arguments, they get into debates, uh, they get, into the, you know, whether it's their favorite sports teams or whatever it is, uh, but they, they get into discussions. But this time they were discussing which of them was greatest, um, and I chuckled because I could think of myself as a young man talking with my college friends about which of us are greatest. Who's the best at Donkey Kong? And who's the best at Defender? Who's the best? Okay, those are video games, by the way, if you didn't know what those are. Video, old video games, great video games. Uh, you know, who's the best looking? Who's the, you know, strongest? That's just what young men, at least back then, did. I don't know what young men do now. I'm sure you do the same, just in different ways. And here are these men. Are they talking about who's the greatest among us. They're boasting of which of them is better than the others. And you can almost imagine, you can just kind of see the flow of this. It is probably initiated by Peter and James or John. I'm going to guess Peter, okay. They had just seen Christ transfigured before them on the mountain. They got to see Moses and Elijah. They got to hear the voice from God. Did you think they felt better or greater than the nine who were left down in the bottom? Absolutely. I, I know I would feel that way for sure I'm special I got to see Jesus transfigured you guys couldn't even cast out a demon anyways they they were while Jesus is bringing them back and Jesus is trying to convey to them about his impending death the disciples thoughts are set on of all things their status how great they are Jesus of course being God knew exactly what they were thinking He, he asked them they didn't want to tell him but Jesus then provides an object lesson for his disciples, using a child. Uh, this child was a, would be a small child, Dion, so it's, a, it's a, probably a toddler, a toddler age. In the culture that day, children were seen quite differently from our day. Children are like, in our days, are like little gods, you know. We, we just love them. We're like, oh, they're so cute. Oh, you know, we fall down. We, you know, we just love them. I, not that we worship them, but you know what I mean? We, we just we, we love them so much. We, we treasure them a lot. Uh, we give them, we, we protect them. We provide all sorts of, you know, honor and, you know, uh, security, safety for them. But in Jewish society, children were considered the most insignificant and lowest of the order in the social, in the social society. In fact, uh, some of the Jewish writings considered it a waste of time to spend time with children. Can you imagine that? Important people. In fact, if you're an important person, you're not someone who, who spends time with children at all. That's why, the, you remember this, the story where Jesus uh, decided to try to chase away the children when they come to him? Because they had that idea in mind. Oh, Jesus is too important for ch- to waste his time with children. Go away. shoo. Shoo. In their minds, in the culture that day, greatness is determined by the company one keeps. The principle still operates today, doesn't it? If you're friends with a famous person, a musician or a star or athlete, that sort of elevates your status in the eyes of others. But not for Jesus. He says... Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. To receive in Jesus' name is basically to welcome someone on behalf of Christ. In the service of Christ, to welcome someone. To receive someone is an act of kindness, an act of love. You know, in our American culture, it's actually, it's kind of, this may seem kind of weird because we we sort of, we tend to be a friendly culture. That's one of the best things about Americans. Uh, but you go travel around the world, some cultures are not so friendly, right? Okay? They, 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 I mean, it's not like they hate you, they're mean keep people. They're just, that's part of their culture. They're just more guarded. They're not as friendly as we are here in America. We just, and so, but so it was important. So sometimes you could be a stranger, and you walk around, and you would not be received by anyone, you would not be welcomed by anyone. And in this culture, it's important then to welcome someone, and you would welcome them. As in Jesus' name, as Christians. Jesus is teaching that how one treats this child, really the least of society, symbolic of the least of society, reflects how you treat Jesus. How you relate to Jesus reflects how you relate then to the Father who sent him. See, Jesus' disciples are to be characterized by loving and treating well the least of society. Least of society, whether they're out there in the world, but especially the least inside society that are among us as a body of Christ. We need to be people who love the least. Don't just love those who are like us. Love those who are, I mean, we look up to, but love the least. And then Jesus ties it all together. He says, and he ties it all, he says you guys are talking about what is great? Well, I'll tell you what.'" Who's great? The one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. It doesn't mean the child, but the one who says, we really has the idea of the one who has the attitude, who puts themselves below others, puts themselves, considers others more important than themselves, the one who treats others, particularly the least of society, as more important than themselves, puts them before themselves, is then the least among you. And the one who basically serves all, this one is the great one. This one is the greatest. Or in other words, it's simply humility. Humility in the followers of Christ marks greatness. In Christ's kingdom, greatness isn't measured by how many people you serve. How many people, excuse me, how many people serve you, but rather how many people you serve. You want to be first? You want to be great in the kingdom ministry? Then put on humility that sees yourself as last of all. And put on the apron of a servant and serve others. Put on a heart that serves others as a servant of all. And I am encouraged because I know that some of you will be doing that today. Some of you are going to be, this afternoon, are going to go out and minister in the name of Christ to those who are dying, disabled, and diseased. The people who are sometimes neglected during the busy holiday seasons. And when you go show and you welcome them, when you see them, you show kindness to them, you show your greatness as followers of Christ. Go be great as followers of Christ today. Really want to be challenged, meditate upon this question. How are you loving the least? How are you loving the least? Just write that down. Spend some time thinking about it sometime this week. A fourth and final key. To greatness in ministry is found in our last <coughs> few verses, <coughs> verses 46, verses 49 to 50, 49 to 50. And that is, greatness in ministry is characterized by sharing the ministry, by sharing the ministry. <coughs> John answered and said, we read in 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, "Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you." John replies to Jesus' basically previous instruction with a comment. It's almost a confession, really. Apparently, there was an Exorcist uh, <clears throat> casting out demons in Jesus' name. But this exorcist wasn't among the 12. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't even among the group of disciples that followed Jesus around. It says, He does not follow along with us. He's not among the helpers. He wasn't with them. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't called like they were. He wasn't commissioned like they were. He had not been with Jesus. He had not been following them, listening to Jesus, learning from Jesus, and watching Jesus. He wasn't in their group. But he was out there casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And apparently, he was succeeding. But because he did not follow along with them, he wasn't with them, the disciples, John has confesses, basically they tried to stop him. They tried to prevent him. They had thought that exorcism was their exclusive ministry. Remember, Jesus gave them authority over demons and diseases. They're the apostles, not this guy. And so what would Jesus say? John's probably saying this because he just heard about uh, the necessity of humility and he's kind of just feeling convicted and uh, maybe saying hey, maybe we did something wrong. And so John tells us to to Jesus. But what is Jesus' response? Jesus' reply is simple and principled to the point. He says, Do not hinder him. Don't try to stop him don't and the principle is really don't try to stop others who are doing good in Jesus name the reason for he who is not against you is for you jesus wants disciples to basically have a generous and gracious heart toward others who serve in the name of christ the ministry of the kingdom of christ is large enough to share we may not agree With others who are in the kingdom of Christ, we may differ on different areas of of theology, of even practical philosophy of ministry, on some interpretations of scripture. But he who is not against you is for you. Ministry is never meant to be an exclusive endeavor. We are not the only people doing the kingdom of God work We need to share in the ministry. We need to be generous and gracious in ministry. Numbers eleven twenty six. 26. There's a wonderful story uh, about two men named Eldad and Medad. And they uh, they one day we started prophesying in the camp. And they were, it was interesting because there were Moses had chosen 70 people to go before the Lord, and those 70 people prophesied. These two, they were, they were somehow not with that group, but they started prophesying. It was reported to, to Moses. By Joshua. And Joshua wanted to stop them. But Moses had these words to say to Joshua. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would well, that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit upon them. It was because it was the Lord who sovereignly put his spirit upon those two. Upon Medad and Eldad. It was the Lord who caused them to prophesy. And yeah, Moses didn't choose them. Yes, they weren't with the seventy. But may everyone be used of the Lord and prophesy. And they may not be, people may not be part of this church. They may not be commissioned by us. They may not believe the same exact same things that we do. But may everyone go out there and proclaim the name of Christ and the gospel of Christ crucified. Paul, too, has the same, had the same attitude when in prison in Rome. There were people who were, pre, there were preachers, in fact, who were preaching Christ out of the wrong motives. But did Paul try to stop them? No, he didn't. He instead writes this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So when it comes to the ministry of the kingdom of God, not only for with other churches, but even here in the church we we have the we serve in the same ministry and hopefully there is no sense of division i never i don't get that sense of division here but if we ever start thinking that 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 we're ever divided or that or I, this is my ministry and no one can tell me what to do about it we going or we have concern about other people what they're doing for christ's kingdom let us have have a generous and gracious spirit let's speak truth to one another in love no doubt but let's also try to maintain a, a generous and gracious spirit as we share, recognize that we share this ministry of the kingdom. Let us rejoice in others' growth and success because when, the, when churches grow and people grow, it brings glory to Christ. And if there's any differences that we may have, then we can always trust Christ to deal with that. Christ is the Lord of the church. Christ will discipline those who are in error. There's only one Christ there's only one ministry for Christ. And we are one among many, maybe thousands, churches across many denominations who proclaim this message of Christ crucified. Well, let me just summarize. Greatness in the kingdom and kingdom ministry is marked by believing in God, understanding, understanding, Christ's death, loving the least, and sharing the ministry. May you examine your own heart. May your, whatever ministry you do uh, for the Christ's kingdom may be characterized by these same things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word and your guidance as far as our attitudes are the right perspectives to have ministry. And Lord, I give you thanks because as I look upon this room, I know that many here have these kind of perspectives already. And I thank you for that because I see among uh, many, uh, many in this church, really have accomplished great things because they have put their faith in you, because they have truly <coughs> understood the importance of simply proclaiming the gospel of, the, of Christ and him crucified. They are men and women who, have, who certainly have loved the least and put many before themselves. And they are people who have been generous and, and gracious in sharing the ministry of the gospel. And I thank you, Lord, because... These are the kind of people whom you call and save and and use in your kingdom. And yet, Lord, as we accomplish these great purposes, we ask that you would guard us from ever thinking that the greatness is within us. It's not, we know. Our adequacy to do so, our power to do so, our wisdom to do so has only been because of you at work in our lives. And we give you thanks and praise. May SF Bible become a church that is a great church, that is known for for faithfully being your servant to tell others about, you, about Jesus Christ and him crucified to the glory of your name. Lord, we ask that your spirit will continue to do a work in our hearts. Show us if there are areas that we need to correct and help us, to, Lord, to, be, to, to, <clears throat> to strive to live in accordance with your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.